So, um, if you ever are lacking for conversation at dinner, say you're at a group gathering, if you have children, you're never lacking for conversation, but, um, but suppose you are lacking conversation, you're looking for something to start the ball rolling. I've got a good, good way to start. Ask the question, who besides Jesus was the greatest person to ever live and why? Have you ever thought about that? Who the greatest person outside of Jesus to ever live and why? Is anybody bold enough this morning, you don't have to give us the why, but is anybody bold enough to say who you think the greatest person was aside from Jesus? Anybody? Zach? Oh, whatever. I thought you were going to say Pastor Chad, but never mind. <laughs> anybody have any other words? Thanks, Zach. I pretty buzzkill there. John the Baptist. Jesus answers the question. Um, you go, if, you, if you open your Bibles, uh, we're, we're going to be in John, but just look in Matthew, Matthew chapter 11. Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. So if you go there, Matthew chapter 11 and, um, and verse 11, Jesus makes this declaration about John the Baptist. He says, Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. It's amazing to me to think about this. When we look at this Bible that, that we have, that we can read this Old Testament, and, and, and Jesus, when, when looking and reflecting over all of history, bypasses Abraham, the, the father of faith. He, he bypasses um, Daniel, who... who arguably could have been one of the most influential men uh, in all the world, that he was an influential leader in two of the greatest empires. That he bypassed Moses, the instrument that God would use to, to take his people out of bondage. He, he bypassed David, this humble shepherd boy, this champion of warriors, and a man who would become the greatest king Israel would ever know. He, he bypasses Noah. He bypasses all these people, and he goes to a contemporary, a person of that time, John the Baptist. I wonder why. Why did, why did Jesus say John the Baptist is the greatest man to ever live? This morning we're going to... Um, look at one of the reasons why I believe he made that statement. When we read um, about John the Baptist early on, John the Baptist had um, one job. God gave him a job. And his job was to be called, uh, to be the, the forerunner of the Messiah, the forerunner of Christ. There's three really main um, objectives that, that John the Baptist had as the forerunner. First, it was to clear the way. To clear the way. Uh, during that time, the Jews had this belief. They knew of the Messiah. They, they would read in the Old Testament the Messiah was coming. But in their minds, this Messiah would be a political leader. This military man who would come in and he would restore the literal Israel, the, 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 the government, the, the people, the nation. 
I mean, so in their minds, they're, they're viewing this political military leader that would come and capture the people and, and build up within and, and create this massive thing, this massive nation. And so John begins his ministry by clearing the way, by, by changing their perception of what the Messiah would be. So first he was to clear the way, and then it was to prepare the way. He, he, he was charged with preparing the way for the Messiah, for the Christ, for Jesus. When we read about John, he, he would go around and, and his message was clear, repent. Repent, repent, repent. Change, change, change. Turn from your sin to God. And then the third part of this task of being the forerunner was to get out of the way. So he cleared the way, prepared the way, and then finally get out of the way. And it's this get out of the way part that I believe made him, in Jesus' eyes, the greatest man. This passage that we're going to read about this morning opens up and we start reading And the writer sets the stage for what could be um, a a very difficult interaction. He he lays the groundwork for for a circumstance that could cause great friction and argument. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 where we'll spend uh, the rest of the morning. So John chapter 3. And we'll look in verse 22. And go forward. So, John chapter 3. He says uh, in verse 22, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem, because the water was plentiful there. And the people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. So here we have this stage, and and when we read and we look in in, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, we see that that John the Baptist, for lack of better words, territory, area of ministry, was in Judea. And Jesus, his ministry was primarily in Galilee, and, and specifically, more specifically, in the temple. And they have these guys, and, and they're going around kind of saying the same thing. They're on camps. And Jesus and his disciples, they, they leave Galilee and they head to Judea, into John the Baptist's backyard. And the crowds begin to leave John the Baptist and go to Jesus. Now, before we get into some of this, I, I do find one part of this fascinating. In verse 23, it says, John was also baptizing in Eon, Enon, near Salem. I wonder why. Have you ever thought about why? Why was he there? I wonder if it was this great revelation that God gave him, this burden, this, this direct call to go to this area to baptize. No. At least from what we can tell in Scripture. Maybe he's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. Because we see all that going on in this time. He's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. No. When we read this passage, the Apostle John tells us he was there because there was water. <laughs> Plentiful water. I want to speak for just a second for, for those of us who, um, 
are pursuing God, pursuing Jesus and our relationship with Him. I remember as a teenager trying to navigate to find God's will in my life. And that navigation went from my teenage years to my college years, um, into my early 20s, my mid-20s, into my 30s, mid-30s, and now towards the end of my 30s. You know, sometimes we create this, this big thing, this huge mystery of what God's will in our life is. As if it's this special code that, that if we pray long enough, if we read the Bible long enough, then, then he'll begin to give us these markers. And sometimes we can find in our lives we, we don't do anything because we're looking for what God's will in our life is. I want to do my best to try and demystify God's will a bit here. See, John was baptizing Enon because there was water. The challenge for us today is this. When we go and serve and we look for God's will, God's will is a relationship with Him. God's will is that we spend time with Him, reading His Word, talking with Him in prayer, worshiping Him in music in our life. And God, as we do that, as we take those little steps, we find ourselves walking in God's will. One of the early church fathers, Augustine, made this statement. He said, love God with all your heart and do whatever you please. Love God with all your heart and do whatever you please. The reality is this. When we love God with all of our heart, we're seeking after God. Our desires become His desires. I um, was reading this week about uh, a man named Chuck Smith. And for those of you who are familiar with the Calvary Chapel movement, um, Chuck Smith was kind of the father of it. And he um, left this good established church and he took this little country church out in California. And this little country church grew into this massive Calvary Chapel movement. And Costa Mesa, when he got there, was this tiny little podunk town. And, and as over time, it became this very well-to-do area. Later on in his ministry, um, Chuck Smith was asked, how did God move? What, what revelation did God give you to go to this little town? And his response was, it was the closest one to the beach and I like to surf. <laughs> See, what he was saying is this, that, that God gives us all natural desires. He gives us these, these, these things that we enjoy doing. When we seek God with all of our heart, he allows us those opportunities. He allows us to do those things that we love. Those things are given to us as blessings. And so let me just, as I said, let's demystify God's will in our lives. It's not this huge cloud that one day we hope to attain. No, it's a relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we engage more in that relationship, 
as we get to know Him more, as we love Him more, then we begin to walk along life with Him. So let's continue on the passage. Jesus shows up in John's backyard and He's baptizing. His disciples see this going on and, and so they run over to John. Verse 25 says this, um, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So these John's disciples are, are talking with a, a Jew. We don't know who that is. Some speculate that this could be Nicodemus, the one we spent the last two weeks talking about. It's possible. I have no idea. Maybe when we get to heaven one day we can ask. But he, these disciples are having a, a discussion with this um, Jew about purification. Doesn't mean a whole lot to John here because he, he gets off that. All he does is he draws attention to it by saying in verse 26, And then they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John's disciples, the ones who are following John the Baptist, they didn't understand it. See, they view Jesus now as competition. And John the Baptist never viewed Jesus as competition. What he saw in Jesus was not competition in his ministry, but completion to his mission. Jesus was, was the one that, that he found his joy in. It's interesting. We can go back in, in Luke chapter 1. First time Jesus meets John the Baptist. At that time, they're both in their mother's wombs. The Bible tells us that as Mary, Jesus' mother, walked into the room and saw Elizabeth, that John the Baptist in her womb began to turn and move. See, just the mere presence of Jesus caused this excitement in John the Baptist in the womb. And this excitement didn't stop there. It, it transformed to, to at John the Baptist's zenith of his ministry. When he's at his top, the sound of Jesus brings him joy. He gives us a few reasons why Jesus shouldn't be viewed as competition. Uh, verse 27 John answers his disciples, he says, Hey, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. If you have your Bibles, I would strongly encourage you to underline that verse. Let me read it again, verse 27. John's answer to his disciples. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. What a great reminder for us today. Everything we have has been given to us by God. Everything. You may say, well, yeah, but I work hard at my job. I hope you do. But realize the job that you have is a gift from God. The health that you have to go to job, to go to your work, is a gift from God. The breath that you just took in is a gift from God. We could talk about hundreds and hundreds of other gifts. All of those 
undeserved, but given to us by God. We cannot lose sight that everything that we have, our physical, emotional, our wealth, everything we have has been a gift given to us by God. Never, ever lose sight of that. Life gets hard. It does. Some of us um, have to deal with challenges, and some of those challenges aren't a one-day challenge, a two-day challenge. They may be months, weeks, years, decades. But God will give you the strength to go through those challenges. Sometimes we, we begin to equate in our minds that, that God can be unfair because of the things he's dealt us. That's a very dangerous trap to fall into. Don't forget the blessings of life. Don't dwell on the one or two or three or a dozen bad things in life and miss out on all the amazing things that he's given us. John reminds his disciples that um, everything we have has been given to us by God's pleasure. And then we go further and he says, uh, verse 28 says, You yourselves uh, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John reminds his disciples, you guys, think about this. These are men that have been traveling with John. They've been doing ministry with John. You know, when we think about John the Baptist, he did not fit this mold of what we would consider to be the greatest man alive. John um, didn't seek power and riches. He found solitude in a desert. John never um, had this focus on having a suave image. Instead, John chose to wear um, camel's hair and leather. Which, and maybe that's cool now, I don't know. See, John, John wouldn't be the one that we would identify as being this great natural-born leader. In fact, the reality is most of us would probably look at John as being weird. John had invested in these men. They'd followed him. They'd gone through probably the ridicule of following this guy. And I'm sure there's a, there's a part of John that as his disciples begin to, to stir up this stuff about Jesus, that he just begins to feel awful. Like maybe he's failed as, as their leader. That somehow or another, they missed the mark. And so he reminds them once again, like he had reminded those at the Jordan River, I am not the Messiah. I am not Jesus. I'm not the Christ. He is. He is the Messiah. He is the one that's been promised. And I love this because John goes on and tries to illustrate it. Verse 29 says, The one who is the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. See, during this time, the, bride, the, the friend of the bridegroom, would, what we would kind of consider today the best man. I'm kind of thankful that our traditions have changed from 
this time. Because during this time, it was the best man, the, the friend of the bridegroom. It was his responsibility that, that, that once it became official that, that the, the bride and groom were going to get married, we've talked about that, that time, that betrothal period where the, the bride and the groom were separated, the groom would go back home, and he would begin to construct his, his home or the, the, the room on his dad's home. Well, it was the friend that would go and help the groom construct this. And not only was he there helping construct this, he was also, for lack of better words, the wedding planner. Now, I was fortunate. My dad was my best man at my wedding. But I was also probably fortunate that he was not the wedding planner. Or let me rephrase that. My wife is fortunate that he was not the <laughs> wedding planner. Okay? And, and I would venture to say that um, any wedding going on now is probably better off if the best man is not the wedding coordinator. Okay? But in this case, during this time, it was. He was the one that would invite all the guests. He was the one that would make all the preparations for the wedding feast. And remember, that wedding feast would be like a week long. And then during this feast, what would happen is, at some point, the, the, the bride would make her way to the, to the bride chamber. And the friend of the bridegroom would stand guard outside the room, and nobody was allowed to get close to that room except for the groom. And he would stand there and he would wait outside the door until he heard the voice of the groom. And once he heard the groom's voice, his joy was complete. His job was done. And he could back away and leave because the groom was with the bride. And so we have this beautiful picture And John says, I'm not the groom. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. It's my job to prepare the way, to clear the way. And I'm standing outside the door waiting. And now I hear the groom's voice. And my joy is complete. Joy is a funny thing. Where do we find our joy? Do we find our joy um, because we receive something from the Lord? No. Do we find our joy because we do something for the Lord? No. We find joy fulfilled when we hear the Lord. I'll tell you this. Um, if you think your joy will be fulfilled in a nicer husband, if you think your joy will be fulfilled in a faster car or a bigger home, you're on a road to despair. If you believe that your joy will be fulfilled because um, you're going to be noble and you want to teach this Bible study, you think that your joy will be fulfilled if, if I sing with that worship team, if you think your joy will be fulfilled if I go over here and do ministry, over there to do ministry, you are going to be on a road to desperation and disappointment. See, we find our joy when we hear the Lord. How do we hear the Lord? I talked about it a few minutes ago. It's, it's when we spend time with Him. I only get 
to know my wife better if I spend more time with her. I only have the opportunity of getting to know my children better as I spend more time with them. The same goes with the Lord. I only get to know the Lord better as I spend more time with Him, as I read my Bible. Not for the sake of checking a box off saying, yeah, I read a chapter today. I'm good. No, but when we read, when I pick up this book and I, I realize and I remember that this is God's precious word. He crafted this. He wrote this for you and for me. And when I take the time to not just read it, but meditate it and pray over it. When I can laugh at some of the stories and cry over some of the stories. When I take these verses and I memorize it and they become part of my life. And then as I spend time with him in prayer, an unrehearsed prayer, I love, um, I have young children. Our oldest is eight. Mackenzie is eight years old. And I use and talk about my children a lot. But those of you who have young kids and you teach your kids to pray, you know, um, early on it's these memorized song-type prayers, right? To me, it's so special now and exciting as a father that um, when I hear my kids pray outside of a song they've memorized, when I hear them start talking to God and, and, and mentioning people's names, when I hear my kids pray for Redemption Hill Church, when I hear my kids pray and talk from a child to a savior. As adults, sometimes we're now different than little kids with memorized prayers. We have one we do at breakfast, we have one we do at lunch, we have one we do at dinner, and maybe one as we're falling asleep. We go through the routine of life. Think about how that relationship, when we begin to talk to God like he's our savior, like he's our king, he loves us. He wants to know. He sees everything. He knows everything. But he wants a relationship with me and with you. He wants to hear about your bad day. He wants to hear about your frustrations at work, your frustrations at home. He wants to hear about the good things. Kids, he wants to hear about you making the winning shot at a basketball game. He loves us, and he wants to be with us. If, if, if you guys don't take anything from our church, I hope you take this. Our desire, myself as a pastor and Pastor Ryan, our desire is not to try and create a religion. Our desire is to drive a relationship. I could care less about a religion. It's always, always been about a relationship. So John goes and makes his very, very bold statement in verse 30. And again, I would encourage you to underline, highlight, circle, whatever. Verse 30. 
John says, he, he being God, must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. John never wanted the attention. John never wanted a ministry built around himself. He never wanted to be put on a platform. He kept saying, I must decrease. It's not about me. It's always about him. I talked with our worship team this morning before service and at, at the end of their rehearsal. And I told them as leaders, I hope and pray we echo this same verse. That what we do here is never about us. It's obvious they're very gifted musically. The thing I appreciate about about Ryan Whitfield so much is not his musical ability. Not that he can wear skinny jeans, which I struggle with. It's that Ryan demonstrates a life of, I must decrease and he must increase. It's not about me, it's about him. As your pastor, it's my desire to be able to say the same words, not from here, but from here. From my own heart to say, it's not about Chad. Redemption Hill, I hope and pray, is never built around Chad Clement. If it is, then I'm failing as a pastor. That it's always built around Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. I must decrease. He must increase. It's interesting, quickly, as we come to an end here, sometimes John chapter 3 is considered a must-read chapter in the Bible. We see um, three different musts mentioned here. John chapter uh, 3, verse 7, we see um, the must of a sinner. We talked about this uh, three weeks ago. John 3, um, verse 7 says, uh, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The must of a sinner, you must be born again. Jesus never talks about reformation. He never talks about a few little changes in your life, a few little tweaks here and there. Jesus always talks about regeneration, a new birth. I heard um, a story, read a story, about two guys in the king's court, and they were arguing in front of the king about whether someone could be trained to be a gentleman or if they had to be born a gentleman. The king, after a while, got tired of this argument, so he gave them both some money and told them to leave and figure it out and come back and talk to him and give him their findings. So the men separate, and the one who believed that you could be... um, trained into becoming a gentleman, went into an inn, and he sat down, and he ordered a cup of hot chocolate. And as he's waiting for the hot chocolate, a few moments pass, and through the door comes a cat, dressed up like a waiter. And he's carrying this hot chocolate with his two front paws. And it clicked. This guy goes, this is my answer. Surely if a common cat can be trained to be a waiter and bring hot chocolate, then a man could be trained to become a gentleman. 
So he runs to the, the door, the innkeeper and says, how much is your cat? I want to buy this cat. He says, a thousand pounds. And so the guy says, not a problem. Here's your thousand pounds. He takes this cat and he joyfully knows he's won the argument. So he begins to walk towards the palace. The other gentleman who was arguing that you had to be born a gentleman was dejected. Started walking to the palace thinking, I don't know what to do now. He's got a cat that can bring hot chocolate. How do I stop that? So as he's walking with his head down, he, out of the corner of his eyes, he, he sees inside a window of the shop his answer. And with joy, he runs into the shopkeeper and he says, can I buy what's in the window? And he, he says, yes, absolutely. So he joyfully puts it in a box and, and the man heads to the palace and they both arrive about the same time and they get into the kingdom and into the, the palace and the king says, okay, what's your answer? And the man who believes that you can train a gentleman says, I have your answer. And in walks this cat carrying a nice cup of hot chocolate for the king. And with a smile, the other man opens up his box and outrun 12 mice. And the cat drops the hot chocolate and chases the mice. And it proved his point that you can train someone to look one way, but eventually the mouse will run out and they'll return back to their nature. See, when it comes to us and religion, we can wear a tie and come to church. If Zach Warren can wear a tie, Anyone can wear a tie. You can wear a tie and come to church. You can learn the church talk. You can learn the prayer. You can join the worship team. We'd love to have you. You can do communion. We can teach all these things. But eventually, if it's just this, if it's just stuff that we're storing up in our minds, eventually in life, there are going to be mice that are going to run out there. And the true nature comes out. So John in, in verse 3, 7 says to the sinner, the, the must for the sinners, you must be born again. In uh, three fourteen, we see the must of a Savior. He says, uh, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is the third week we've referenced this story out of Numbers 21, where Jesus or where Moses is in the wilderness, and, and he's been leading these people out of bondage. And God's been preparing. He's, he's, been, he's been giving them blessings called manna, food. He was, he was giving them food, and the people got sick of manna. They had the same thing every day. I don't know how many different ways they tried to prepare it, do it, whatever, but they got sick of manna. And so they began to grumble and complain about it. And so God sends these serpents and they began to bite the people, and they would die. They ran back to Moses seeking a remedy, a cure. And so Moses goes to God. And we read in Numbers 21, God's plan was for them to construct this bronze snake. We'd go on a pole, and they would lift it up. And if someone were to be bitten by a snake, they could look up to the serpent and be healed. A beautiful picture of sin and a remedy for sin. 
and a cure if they would just look. And we read here in 3.14 where he says the must of a Savior is he's going to be lifted up just like that serpent. And Jesus, one day, some three years after this is said, would be lifted up on a cross similar to that. He would be beaten and hung and ridiculed. And much like those children had to just look up to the bronze serpent and believe they'd be healed, that we, who have been bitten by a snake of sin, and if we're all honest, we realize that we ourselves are not just bitten by a snake, our snakes ourselves. That we've all, in some time of our lives, have hurt somebody else. We've lied or cheated or done some harm to somebody else. So not only are we a bitten by the snake of sin, but oftentimes we are the snake of sin. And Jesus says, I'm going to become just like you. I'm going to leave heaven and become just like you, except I'm not going to have venom. And I will be lifted up. I will be lifted up on a cross. And you can find the remedy. You can find the cure for this sin. You can be forgiven for this sin by just looking and believing. And the last must we see in the chapter is in verse 30, the must of a servant, where he says, I must, I must decrease and he must increase. Jesus, or John, ends this passage. Verse 31, he says, And he who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And please pay very close attention to these last two verses. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Verse 36. Please underline this in your Bible as well. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. John ends this passage and he reminds his people that Jesus is not the competition. He's the completion. We believe him because it's not Jesus speaking theoretically. Jesus is speaking out of experience. When Moses raised the brass serpent, Jesus was there. 
When Moses parted the Red Seas, he was there. When Noah built the ark and got on the ark, he was there. When, when David went up against Goliath, he was there. He was there, he was there, he was always there, he was there now, he will forever be there. He is the one with the first-hand eyewitness account. And John ends this passage speaking truth in a loving way, but in a very straightforward way. And he says, whoever believes in the Son will have eternal life. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Whoever believes in Jesus, God's only Son, who left heaven to come to earth as a sacrifice for our sins, whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. Eternal life, yes. Eternal life in heaven. But that life starts the moment we believe. That life begins here on earth. And we get little glimpses along the way and it manifests itself one day in heaven. But then he ends by saying, but whoever doesn't, whoever does not believe in the Son gets the wrath of God. John, the Apostle John, who wrote this book, uses the word wrath one time in this entire gospel, and that's right here. Some will say, well, that's unfair. Who gives him the right to make the decisions? See, Jesus does not condemn us because we are born in a world of sin. He had compassion on us because we were born in a world of sin. That compassion led God to send his son to a cross for us. He has compassion for us. He does not condemn us. We condemn ourselves. When we say no to those outstretched hands with those scars from the nails, when we tell him that we can do it on our own, that we're smarter than he is, that we're bigger than he is, we condemn ourselves. His love, well, his love is celebrated in a cross. Let's pray.